Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, we're back out at Providence Park in the afternoon here. There's there's no one training. It feels like a really weird week already with Labor Day. So yeah, I why are we here? Should <laughs> we have recorded know. yesterday? Probably. I mean, I did absolutely nothing of interest on Labor Day. <laughs> <laughs> I did absolutely nothing, period, uh, which is why I was kind of looking forward to doing the recording with you today. But then it just seems like everybody's trying to cram two days into one right now and I'm actually pretty thankful just to be talking to you so I don't have to be distracted by other things at the moment. So it's good to be here with you, Jamie. It's good to be looking at a Providence Park that is changing dramatically over the last couple months. I mean, look, there, it seems like they added another level to the yeah. east side. I really think since like last week I was here, I see like another level. It's really mm-hmm. cool, actually, for anyone who, when they're out at the stadium, just taking a look because it changes so it's, fast. They are getting... Uh, work done here uh, and I think an incredible pace although I don't really know how construction works so that means nothing <laughs> I was about to agree with you but then you said you don't know how construction works oh neither do I I am not a I'm not a constructor what's the, what's the job title here a construction person uh, but it does seem like not only is it going fast but it's weird to think at this time next year when we're doing this podcast next year that's going to be done and there's going to be a whole east side of the stadium that has us has the field in shadow at this point point it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting yeah, yeah. actually it feels weird i don't i don't want to talk about this <laughs> It'll anymore. Be, we all have a lot of time to talk about the construction i'm sure that'll be a major talking point going to next year yeah but probably. this year right now we can talk about a, a few timbers results from last week actually i think a little bit more positive than we've had recently <laughs> although i bit. think i think we definitely have uh some issues and different things to discuss as well but uh, let's start with the first one the big one uh timbers Finally snapping their four-game losing streak with a 2-0 win against Toronto here at Providence Park last week. I think I wasn't as... I didn't think this was going to turn out as well as it did. Yeah, I think that all of us were pretty impressed with the performance. I think maybe at halftime we wouldn't have said we were impressed. We would say, oh, this is more of the same from the Seattle game. But 
They eventually broke through. They broke through with a goal that was basically right off the training ground, the type of goal that you look at and you say, if the Timbers are going to take it to another level, they're going to have to execute those kind of goals, those goals where other teams are taking Armenteros out of the game, taking Valeri out of the game, and other people have to step up. It was Diego Charaz that stepped up, and then David Guzman that stepped up and stepped through Michael Bradley for his goal, and ultimately a streak-snapping 2 to nothing victory that got the team back on track. You had this as a 1-1 game, which not an unreasonable prediction. Maybe you at the time thought that Sebastian Giovinco was going to play. He didn't. Yeah. So how many points are you giving yourself? I don't know. That's really not, <laughs> it's not really right, right on in any way. I didn't get either team's goals right. And it's a draw. Um, I think I'm going to give, give myself, um, I guess I'll give myself two points just for predicting that they were going to snap the, uh, losing streak, but I, I don't feel very good about the prediction. No, that seems like a fair total. Um, me, I predicted that Sebastian Blanco would have a goal. Uh, Sebastian Blanco did get on the score sheet with a very nice assist for Diego Chara, but this is obviously not going to be big points for me because Sebastian Blanco very much did not score a goal. Yeah, I don't know if I can give you any points for that one. That's okay um, if you don't. Just because Blanco is not a high level of difficulty. So yeah. him getting on the score sheet uh, and you not getting what he did on the score sheet, zero points for me. Yeah, I think we've established these are boom or bust scenarios for me, and that's definitely a bust. It wasn't a bust for the Timbers, though, yeah. last Wednesday. Uh, really one of the best performances that they've had in a couple months because even when they were in the middle of their unbeaten run, you were noting that they were having moments where they weren't dominating games. They were having moments where the defense was failing. The attack towards the end of their unbeaten run went over their last two games and had to score three of their four goals from the spot. This, even though the teams went into halftime scoreless, really felt like, dare I say, a Goldberg 90? <laughs> you know, I I think they there was never a point in this game where I necessarily felt like the Timbers were chasing the game and were going to potentially lose at the same point. At the same time, I definitely didn't feel very confident in the attack for... I think they came out in the very beginning with a few pretty good chances, and then yeah. it just went quiet for maybe 30, 30 40 minutes, um, where the, the attack just really, it did feel like you said, sort of like the Seattle game, where when is this team going to be able to break through? I, I think they do break through, and so that's why I think we leave this game feeling pretty positive, snapping the losing streak, getting a win, and finding a way to get goals from different players, uh, something that they've had struggled with this season from the from open play, not just even on uh, set pieces. So there's a lot to be positive about. I, I, <laughs> I don't know um, where this ranks really on Goldberg 90 for me, but uh, I do did feel still, um, you know, the concerns of not seeing the attack really doing much of anything for a good stretch of that game. You know what the worst part about a Goldberg 90 is? I remember we were talking about the, <laughs> the periodic chart of Goldberg elements. Yeah, the fact that it will never happen is a little bit unfortunate. But I said at Goldberg 90, there should be an iceberg that looks like it's made of gold. That would sink to the bottom of the ocean within seconds. That's just such a dumb thing, an iceberg made of gold. So maybe Goldberg 90 is what, not what anybody wants. Something that's a little bit more buoyant that will actually survive <laughs> in the water. Thinking back to what I was talking to people about on Wednesday at halftime. I think a lot of the people I was talking to were really disappointed in the attack at that point because while they were doing a good job of pushing Toronto back and Toronto 
maybe the way that they started the game with Michael Bradley dropping into central defense, maybe that took a little bit of time to adjust to. Maybe they tested Samuel Armenteros against Michael Bradley. I thought for the first half, Michael Bradley might have been, or for the first hour until the first goal, Michael Bradley might have been the best player on the pitch, and then that changed drastically. Maybe you can say, okay, we were testing Bradley and it's not going to work. We're going to have to come up with another plan. But the one thing that I would have really wanted the Timbers to do is use that space between the 12-yard uh, penalty spot and the 18-yard box, the edge of the 18-yard box, to really just take a couple of cracks on Clint Irwin. And I just didn't feel that was happening. And ultimately, they didn't need to do that. They broke through in another way. And maybe that's a testament to their perseverance and their faith in the patterns that they were trying to execute. But yeah, I don't think this was a Goldberg 90 because I think, like you said, for a good 25 minutes, 20 minutes, when it was clear that the Timbers were going to have control of the game and they still weren't producing chances, I was worried. Uh, question is, how long that worry will last? We'll talk about New England in a little bit, but given the drastically different game plan we had against New England, I think it's a little bit difficult to judge what the Timbers attack is going to do going forward when they have a fully healthy team and a fully rested team. So let's stick with uh, Toronto here for a little bit. How important do you think this win was? How important do you think it was to get that four-game streak in the past? Yeah, I, I think it, it was massive. I, I think had they lost that game, it's very likely with with just the emotion going into that in such a short period of time. Obviously, they're professionals, but I, I think it would have been a lot harder for them to then go on the road and get a result in New England just because at some point, losing games weighs on players, and it confidence isn't going to be there and it's very easy after a certain point to start you know it gets harder and harder for a team to dig itself out of um this sort of run uh and so they needed i I think this was a home game midweek in in a tough stretch they needed this win to put them in a position where they could then go on the road and potentially get points in new england i think that's a great way to think about it i hadn't really thought about it like that before but I think coming out of the Seattle game, spirits were still high because they knew that their underlying performance against Seattle was something to build on. But you have to build on it. If you come back in against Toronto and you lay another egg, or even not necessarily laying an egg, if the Vancouver game had happened again, where you fall behind and you find yourself chasing and you just let the game get away from you early on, that would have been a major disappointment. Not only because they would have lost five in a row at that point, or maybe been winless in five in a row if they had drawn that game. But then everything that you told yourself about that Seattle game ends up being not true. In addition, it was very clear that given the challenges of the week with the travel to New England and the lineup that they started against Toronto, they were putting their eggs in that basket. They seemed to look at the travel head and go, went, there's no point in us trying to balance these things. This task ahead of us, the six-hour flight, the time zone change, the turf, the lack of training, we've got we've to address Toronto and then worry about New England afterwards. With that attitude, if in the process of addressing Toronto, they didn't get a result, I agree with you. I hadn't thought about it before, but that would have been, well, it would have been a really quiet trip. It would have been a quiet train, uh, plane ride back east. Um, I think one thing, though, in just looking at our notes and thinking back to Wednesday, I had forgotten everything that had happened on Wednesday. <laughs> From the game opening up with Sebastian Blanco carrying his daughter on the field to celebrate her first birthday, to Diego Chara basically announce he and his wife's expecting child after he, the way that he <laughs> celebrated the goal, to Jorge Villafaña being in the 11. And that was the first time that we'd seen that. I think that took me by surprise when I learned that he was going to start. Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, let's talk about that in a second. And the other thing that happened was Lucas Milano made his return. But let's start with Jorge first because... I think if this point last week, well, at this point last week, I knew that he was going to start. But at Thursday, Tuesday morning last week, if you and I were doing this podcast, 
I think we would have both said that Jorge is highly unlikely to play on Wednesday and something changed. Yeah, I think that I was telling fans were asking me whether he's going to play or not. And I kept saying, probably look towards New England. And even when Jorge had talked to us, he said, by the end of next week, I might be basically the timeline he gave us was by the end of next week, I might be able to play. It was sooner than I I think either of us expected based on what we were hearing from both Jorge and both from Savaresi. So clearly uh, they felt like he was ready and they felt like he could take contact on his shoulder at that point, um, even though he hadn't had that much training with with taking that sort of contact. I thought um, it was... I was very excited at the back line um, that we saw that game. And I How think it's excited the back line. were you? I was just like jumping this up is, and down in the press box. It was embarrassing for you, but I was happy for you too. <laughs> just like pure JV joy in the press box. But no, I mean, it's a, it's a word that we don't use very much on this podcast. But there, throughout that night, there was this building anticipation. I think that's what made it so, such a point of relief when Shiraz scored the goal because it seemed like so much was happening that night. People debuting, people celebrating family moments. Like, Think about how we would have felt after that game if it ended nil-nil. That would have been terrible. Zero-zero, sorry. That would have been terrible considering all the things that happened. So it seemed appropriate. But at the same time, yeah, I I think that this is actually a good example to think about how coaches have to think about the week. Because I think it's pretty clear based on the fact that he wasn't even the 18 that Alvis Powell was not somebody that's going to make that quick turnaround. And we've seen throughout the year towards the end of games, whether it be cramping or muscle issues, he's been somebody that even getting a full 90 minutes out of him has sometimes been difficult. So they clearly had to save him for the New England game. And at that point, they basically had a choice. Are we going to start Marco Farfan or are we going to start Jorge Villafania? And I guess they decided Jorge was far enough along. But after the game, I mean, he had to be substituted out of that game. After the game, he was basically saying, my fitness isn't here yet. So... Even then, it was a bit of a risk to put him in the 11. Yeah, I think so. I, I think overall, I mean, obviously, he, you don't want to have to make that substitution. And so from a, a game state, that that's not something you want to have no, like going right. forward. But I, I think overall, I mean, he, he brought everything I didn't think we expected him to bring. He's going to get better over time, but he obviously gets forward in the attack in a different way that we just haven't seen this year um, from Zarek playing on that side. And, and yeah. I think defensively, the back line... It, it just they get the clean sheet, but I think it's something to really build on those four. I mean, Alvis Powell might has had some really good games this year, and I, I think when he's at his best, he brings probably more than Zarek Valentin does. But the experience on that back line with those four players, I think that's something that could give the Timbers a big boost going into the end of the year when they're trying to get into a playoff run. Um, getting that consistency down. So I think that's a back line we could see a lot of. I, I think we'll likely see it this weekend with Powell on international duty. Yeah. Or I'm hoping we'll see it this weekend. Those are the four players I want to see out there. Um, but I, I think it was a strong performance. Defensively, I think Jorge uh, offered something different in the attack, and I think he will get better over time uh, as, obviously, he gets fitness and doesn't have to be subbed out uh it can play the full 90 minutes. No, I think that, um, you know, I think we had a conversation. I don't think I know that we had a conversation on here once about, um, the fact that Zarek Valentin is a right footed left back. And I kind of described how I felt that the team had done a good job of incorporating that into the way that it, it approached attacking down the left side. And you saw Andy Flo- Polo or Sebastian Blanco getting out there to provide the width and Zarek essentially tucked in as a kind of midfielder of sorts. And so I think there are definitely ways you can deal with having inverted fullbacks. But like you just said, if you, they're not inverted, if they're traditional fullbacks, it whether it's better or worse, it provides something different. And I think having those options is going to be really valuable. And I think having the option of Valentin being somebody that 
when you need like feel like you need a point of stability, somebody to rely on, somebody that can provide the leadership, somebody that can be vocal, somebody that I think we're seeing throughout the course of this year is one of the smartest players that the Timbers can put on the pitch that you can call on him to play for Jorge or Alvis. Uh, I think the Alvis thing, I think it's really instructive because we've had two points this month where the team has had to play three games in eight days or seven days. I think from the outside, you see people saying, oh, I'd manage the team like this, or why didn't Giovanni Savarisi manage the team like this? And you just never know until you know the health concerns of these guys. And we talked about this last week. I think a lot of people might have said, oh, you play Alvis at home against Toronto for the same reason that we saw a basically strong team against Toronto. You go for the three points here because the task in New England is probably going to be too much. Except for Alvis probably couldn't play, period. Or it was too much of a risk for him to play on that short rest. So I think that's a good example of how all of us throughout this year can be learning things about not only philosophically how the coaching staff approaches these things, but on an individual player-to-player basis, like Dave Valeri did do the quick turnaround and then didn't play in New England. So all those things I find really, really fascinating. Uh, but again, we're drifting into New England here a little bit. I think the one thing I want to touch on before moving on is just Liam Ridgewell, which you already touched upon. At this point, is Liam Ridgewell this team's best defender? I think so. I, I And I think Liam Ridgewell has been this team's best defender when he's bought in and and playing up to the potential that he can play it. We've seen him not play well. We saw the New York game. We've seen him have struggles specifically with the travel and going on the road. He's been a better overall, I think, at home during his time with the Timbers. But when he is playing his best soccer, when he's bought in, when he's focused, when he's ready to go... He's the team's best defender, and I don't think there's much of a question there. And I think also he's a needed point of calm and organization. Yeah. Just, I don't know what it is. I mean, I can sit here and talk speculatively for 30 minutes about it. Bottom line, everything looks more organized, more calm. Uh, even in possession, to have his distribution there really helps. You see some of the skip passes that he's able to play to switch play. Uh, skip pass, use a basketball term. I just think that he is their best center back. And when he's healthy and like you say, when he's on the same page as everybody, I even hate saying that because I don't know what example I would point to to say, here's an example of him not being on the same page. Well, I don't know even if on the same page, but in the New York game, it just didn't, for whatever reason, I don't want to judge and do whether it was a lack of effort or, or just him just not having his best day or the travel. He didn't play well. You know, yeah. we, we saw that and we saw the response that came after that. Mm-hmm. But when he's playing well, we've also seen what he can do. Four of the eight games he started this year, the Timbers have clean sheets. One of those eight games he started, he only played six minutes, so we really should discount that. It's really four of seven games that he's really played and played 90 minutes. The Timbers have clean sheets. There's obviously other factors that go into that, but he's certainly a big part in helping them get those uh, clean sheets. I mean, I think he's only had one bad game all year, and it's the one that you've alluded to. And quite frankly, there were 10 other people in that starting lineup that night that had a bad game too. And um, maybe Liam Ridgewell, because of... Our colleague's gifting ability got singled out a little bit there, but I don't think he got singled out unfairly. And when he's back in the team, I think you and I think that the Timbers have a better chance to be at their best. Liam Ridgewell was not in the team for Saturday's game. No big surprise given the turnaround, given the obstacles, given the turf. Neither was Diego Valeri. Neither was Diego Chira. So I think that was a level of rotation that maybe we didn't suspect beforehand, given how Giovanni Savarese and his staff managed the previous three games in a week stretch. However, this was full rotation. This was full survival mode in New England. And Jamie, you had predicted a 2 to nothing loss, (laughs) a prediction that you probably felt pretty good about when you saw the starting 11. Yeah. 
However, it was a one-to-one result. How many points are you giving yourself? Yeah, I, I can't give myself any points for that one. I, I was way off. Um, <laughs> given this lineup, too, it was one of those things. So that's sort of exactly what I was predicting when I said 2-0, that I expected them to go all out against Toronto and, and rotating against New England. They, I, I believe that was the first time that uh, the Timbers haven't had Ridgewell, Char, and Valeri. At least one of those players has been in the lineup since they've been on this roster altogether. So oh, interesting. That was the first time since Ridgewell joined the team when Hashtag none stat of them. <laughs> I think the announcer said it during the game, so I really oh. just hashtag Jake Zivin sat <laughs> that is that is a that is definitely a uh, Jake Zivin yeah. piece of research but I thought that was an interesting fact because those players have been so key to the success of this team at different points over the last few years and to have none of them in the lineup um obviously Ridgewell hasn't played much of a role this year but to not have Valeri and Chara in there yeah uh yeah going to the game I didn't feel a ton of confidence that the Timbers were going to get a result I don't think any Timbers fan does or should feel confident when Diego Chara isn't in the team as is this is the second time this year that Diego Chara has not been in the team and the team still got a result 1-1 I said the Timbers would get at least two goals which makes me very upset about one person's <laughs> lack of finishing towards the end of this game because yeah. that, I think, would have been a huge point total to say that this Timbers team is going to go on the road and get two goals. As is, it didn't happen. Timbers scored one goal thanks to Lawrence Olam cleaning up some garbage on a set piece. How many points do I get? Are you, are you going to fight for that you should get points on this one? I mean, if I get some pity points, that's fine. But if I get more than pity points or if I get zero, no. I, zero is a perfectly acceptable. Yes, I think I'm giving you zero on this one because okay. at least two goals is not one goal. Okay. Understandable. Jamie, let's go back in time to an hour before the game when you saw the lineup. You saw the degree to which the team was not only rotating but had just left some people at home. What was your reaction? Yeah, uh, I think it was five players from Wednesday's team were still in the lineup. Um, and I, in terms of the players that have been most influential in the attack, I, it was really just Blanco on the field still. Armenteros was on the bench. He didn't play in the game, and no Valeri, and then no Chara. And we've seen how important Chara is to this team. Whenever he's on the lineup, I think it gives you a little bit more uh, nerves going into the game to begin with. Uh, Ridge will not in there after the performances on defense he'd have. Yeah, I... I wasn't sure how this was going to turn out. I thought it made a lot of sense. Though. Yeah. I, um, going into the game, I didn't expect Valeri to play because I think Valeri, I don't think Valeri has been at his best for, for some time now. I, I think obviously he still provides goals and assists. He's still a very good player. He finds ways to get himself on the but, staff sheet and help the team. But I do not think Valeri has been, you know, the Valeri that we've looked at and he's, said, he's 32. Yeah. I mean, he's getting older, but he, he also had played, he started every single game up until yeah this point, including uh, in the compacted schedule. He also doesn't have a full system built around him like he did last year. And he deserved to have the system built around him last year. It obviously paid huge dividends for the team. But I think we saw on Wednesday, and we didn't really talk about this too much because we can only talk about so many things. He was essentially a decoy on Wednesday, and Sebastian Blanco was the focal point of the team. And regarding Diego Chara, we saw him kind of play the Andy Polo role on yeah. Wednesday where he's the first person from midfield forward. And I think in a way that makes it a little bit easier to deal with the loss of Chara. We talked earlier this year about how this particular squad, the way it's constructed is better equipped to replace Diego Chara if he was playing in the six, because they have more depth there than they've had before. They have the ability to play not only a six, but two deep eights and cover for it. But it's been a while since Chara played the six. It's more, yeah. mostly been Lawrence Olam and David Guzman. It becomes even more easier to replace Diego Chara when he's not 
the focal point of everything you're doing in midfield if sometimes he has to be the first guy forward, if sometimes he has to be the shuttler coming in. So that would sound a lot better if they actually won one of these games without Diego <laughs> Chara, but clearly the performances have been better than they were before. Uh, but in general, I think it was almost um, a point of relief when you saw the lineup because you kind of say to yourself, they almost have license to lose this game. This isn't a game where they are carrying false expectations into it. They're being realistic. They're not trying to manage this week and consider every best-case scenario on the table. They are going to say, this New England game comes at a crappy time for us, and we are going to just do our best. And in that regard, even though the game was ugly, I mean, the game was really ugly in that first half, I thought they did a pretty good job of balancing the challenges. Yeah, I, I think they have to be happy with the result on the road. I, I think looking at the lineup, we talked about the, the absences, but um, really they only have two attacking players in there, you know, Espria and, and Blanco. Yeah. Um, and so what, if they were going to create chances, it, it was going to essentially come through one of those two players. They had four attackers on the bench, but... With the starting lineup in there, it didn't look like a team that was going to create much. Uh, They were going to have to rely on what few chances they had. I think the first half of the game played out basically exactly as expected, given that, at least on the Timbers side, there was no shots on target by either team. So uh, the Timbers can be happy, you know, with the defensive performance they put. And I think New England's best chance came 20 seconds into the game. Yeah. And that was about (laughs) one that almost uh, maimed Larry Smabiella and Jeff Antonell at the same time. A great read by Antonell to get out there, but obviously the collision made it scary there for a moment. And yeah, I totally agree with you, Jamie. When you see that 11 that gets chosen, you have to think at least what I thought was that Giovanni Savarese was going to play it close to the vest on the road. Try to get new England to run themselves into the ground because they're such a, it's weird how they press. Um, you look at a team like the New York Red Bulls. They have a system that is built off their press. Everything looks very fluid and cohesive. You know the points of the field they want to get you to and where they're going to try to punish you. With New England, I just get the feeling they just run at you. I mean, they just <laughs> run at you as if Brad Friedel has told you that you were going to lose your job if you stop running. And when you look at the bench that Giovanni Savarese chose, one – I think there was a note of discouragement in me for like the second time in three games that he seemed to pick a very unbalanced bench because against Seattle, he only had one strike attacker and (laughs) you saw the tweets online. Oh, he's gone too far in the other direction, but it's very clear what he was trying to do. He was trying to get the game to where it wasn't such a 90 minute game. It was a 30 minute game and or 15 minute game. And by the time that happened, New England would have run themselves out of the game. So, all right, let's throw on Armenteros. Let's throw on Ibobasi. Let's throw on Milano. Let's let's get the legs in there. Let's just run at them at this point. Unfortunately, your goalkeeper pulls a hamstring, throws everything off. Your plan can't fully go into effect. So at the end of the game, you're instead of attacking, you're kind of putting on Bill Tuiloma to hold out and saying, hey, we, we got this point. Let's be happy with it. I, I just wish I could have seen that whole plan play out because as ugly as that first however many minutes were until that first goal – I really think we deserve the payoff. <laughs> I, I think talking about the Timbers getting the just one point out of this, I, I think one moment in the game um, <laughs> that, and we didn't really talk about him in Toronto. So here's our chance to talk about him now, but um, the Timbers still had a big chance to get three points out of this game. They didn't necessarily deserve three points, um, at this, well, at I mean, that point, based on the plan that I just described, yeah, based on was, the plan, but the plan didn't yeah. happen. So no, it, it did happen. I mean, they basically put themselves at a point at the end of the game right. where 
hey, here's this fast guy. We're going to be able to attack. I think had they ended up with three points, they would have been overjoyed by it because it wasn't, they were at that point, I think, sort of playing at the right in stoppage time, sort of playing for the draw. Absolutely. And then Blanco puts a beautiful cross across the box for Lucas Almost Milano. Almost deja vu to Wednesday where yeah, he did the ex- same thing for Chirac. Exactly, except that Milano somehow d- decides he might want to slide and maybe late and sort of steps and he ends slides up slides but sliding. forgets to put either of his feet out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lucas. Um, and the ball goes right by. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it was it was a sitter. Yeah. There's no way around it that I was telling somebody that had he not seen the ball coming and just kept running <laughs> naively, the ball could have hit him and gone into goal. Yeah. But he did see the ball coming. He tried to make a play on it, and that play ended up being counterproductive. And there's no way around it. When you see something like that, it plays into everybody's 2016 fears. Yeah. And we'd spent so much time, I don't want to say giving Lucas Milano the benefit of the doubt, but imagining a universe where somebody that came here when he was in his early 20s came back in his mid-20s and was a different player. And I think we saw signs against Toronto where that was the case. Him running 40 yards to win possession, how many times did we see that (laughs) when he was here before? But then how many times did we see him missing a golden opportunity when he was here before? I mean, it it was unfortunate to think that that was the first major memory that he made upon his return. So given given that context of we've seen this before from him and now we saw it again, I, I got sort of just a statement from Matt, but I, I want to just discuss the statement and how we feel about it. Matt just tells us, please implore our fan base not to turn on Milano yet. He had his moments and looks and looks like he can be dangerous once on, once he's on the same page with the rest of the attackers. Do you feel like that's sort of the accurate approach? How are you viewing Milano right now at this moment, given that sitter, and also given what else we've seen from him in a very limited amount of time so far? I think if you were out on Lucas Milano before Saturday's game, double down on it. I think if you were in on Lucas Milano, or at least keeping uh, your mind open, you really haven't seen enough of anything to change your mind. Ultimately, he's played just under a half of soccer for the Timbers, you should never judge anybody on a half of soccer. I mean, what would you be saying about Frederick Piquillon based on a four-goal performance that you saw one time here? Maybe would never let that go. And maybe some fans have never let that go. And rightfully so. Four goals is four goals. Uh, but I don't think it's reasonable to expect that Milano is going to miss that chance every time. I also don't think it's reasonable to expect that he's going to convert that chance every time. I just don't think we've seen enough evidence based on what we've seen so far. We've had... Two incidences that really st- stick out. Good defensive play, horrible attacking play. We've got to keep our minds open. What do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think he's going to have to be better, and he's going to have to be better soon if this attack is, is going to, to have much of a chance to to get to a level we'd like to see. Yeah. Obviously, we've talked about the attackers that are there, when they're at their best, what they can do. The Timbers really need Milano to step up right now, given yeah. the the troubles they're having from goal-scoring standpoint when Armenteros, Blanco and Valeri aren't the ones that are just playing their best soccer. They need a second attack forward that is going to provide goals as well. Absolutely. And we'll get it. I think we'll probably talk about a little bit with listeners questions as well. They haven't seen that from Espria. Hopefully that can be Milano. It doesn't give you a ton of encouragement when you see him miss a sitter like that, Absolutely. but that it is just one play. And so that's what we have to see. Are we going to see that again? Or are we going to start seeing him 
growing and developing with the team and getting more comfortable and getting more minutes and getting up to his fitness and, and start producing, even if it's not at a, a crazy level, but yeah. enough to be for fans to look at it and say, yeah, this is an effective attacker right now for the Timbers. We've talked about this. This has been the dominant theme of the show since I've come on is basically the Timbers attack. Um, whether it be why Fernando Adi wasn't getting more playing time or what they were going to do after Adi's departure. And at some point, the discussion breaks down where we start talking about Dion Espria because we have to take it as an article of faith that Giovanni Savarese honestly believes that Dion Espria right now is best equipped to be the next man up. If that is the case, and we've, I feel like we keep repeating ourselves here. If that is the case, and we trust Savarese in that, there is a huge gaping hole at the number two spot on the striker depth chart. And the most plausible situation, given that Savarese has looked at Abobasi all year, has looked at Langsdorf all year, has had more time with Konechny than he's had with Milano, the most viable thing that can happen for the Timbers is Milano to step into that number two spot, perform like he did in South America. It's not going to be world-beating, but it's going to be a very viable second attacking option. But then Saturday. Yeah. So, to me, again, that is that changes the whole complexion of this whole debate we've been having all year about Dyron Espria and all these different players. Lucas Milano has to be the person that steps into that number two hole, or he's the more likely, most likely to. Have we seen enough to think that he can actually do that? I say we need to keep our minds open. I am totally open to people that think no. Yeah, I, I'm still with keeping my our minds open, but uh, yeah, it, it's, not, it's not a long leash. We, we have to see something relatively soon from him. Speaking of things that we have to see soon from people, let's talk about Steve Clark, who unfortunately was put in a terrible position <laughs> minutes after coming on where he had a Lawrence Olam giveaway lead to a cross for Kellen Rowe near the spot, blasts it right at Steve Clark. He blocks it down. Unfortunately, Alvis Powell doesn't pounce on it to clear it. And I don't even remember who the goal scorer was at this point. Who was the goal scorer for New England? I don't even remember. It was New England guy scored a goal, uh, as is... That was the goal that put the Timbers down. They scraped it back later, but Steve Clark might have to be called on more often because Jeff Antonella has apparently pulled his hamstring. Now, we don't have an update on it. The pulled hamstring language is what Giovanni Savarese used after the match. He obviously hadn't been able to consult anybody for a firm diagnosis, but we are looking at a universe right now where Jeff Antonella is not going to be available for Saturday's game against Colorado. How big of a loss could that be? Yeah, I, I think it it could be pretty big for this team. I, Adanella, we've talked a little bit about it, and then I think we just kind of let it go. But he's been very good for the Timbers this season overall. Um, yeah, as evidenced when, in the first minute on Saturday. When you just look at his statistics uh, in, in terms of his save percentage and his goals against average, I mean, some of these things like goals against average isn't just up to a goalkeeper. But he has been very good. He's been one of the better goalkeepers in all of MLS. Yeah. And he's been able to step into this role and claim it as his own and beat Jake Leeson out. And to lose that is, is going to be potentially problematic. I mean, Steve Clark wasn't come, brought in here to start. Um, and Kendall McIntosh, we'll get into this a little bit later, is, hasn't really, doesn't really have the endless experience. And so going into a playoff run, you would like to start having things like your back line settled and your goalkeeper settled and experience back there. And the Timbers just lost, potentially, potentially lost, a player that's been really big for them defensively at a point when they're heading into the final two months of the season. 
especially after what happened at the end of last year. I don't think Timbers fans should have any tolerance for a key player coming up with a hamstring injury that might <laughs> be out for who knows how long. Hopefully this recovery goes better than Fernando Adi's last yeah. year. Uh, but we're talking about who's going to be the number one goalkeeper. That leads us into Saturday's game, 7.30, Providence Park. Colorado Rapids coming in here. Timbers beat Colorado earlier this season in Colorado. Samuel Armenteros with a memorable game, first multi-goal game in Timbers history in Colorado. The Rapids are doing a little bit better. They had an impressive game a couple weeks ago against the Galaxy in Carson. And then they laid a huge <laughs> egg in the Rocky Mountain Cup against RSL, becoming the first team over a fortnight to concede six goals to RSL. LA went and did the same thing this weekend. What do we make of Colorado? Let me put this a different way. It's not so much what we make of Colorado. It's what does Colorado represent in the context of the timber season. Is there any excuse for not getting three points on Saturday? No, I, I don't think there's any excuse in this game. I think this is a winnable game. I think the Colorado, I, I believe, will be without uh, Acosta. I, so I think in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Helen Acosta, the, the Rapids player that wasn't a Rapid last time yeah. that Portland uh, faced But I Colorado. think one of the, the few bright spots um, for them uh, since he's come in and a player that can make a big difference, he won't be here. I... I think this is a Colorado team that's basically on the cusp of already being eliminated from playoff contention and isn't going anywhere. Spiritually, they're eliminated. Um, San Jose is already eliminated. I was sort of surprised when I looked at the... I was like, why is there an E next to San Jose? <laughs> it's it's just like the beginning of September. Do you get like a Northern California text alert? I do not. I, <laughs> I in no way follow San Jose whatsoever or ever have. Um they're, they've never been a fun team to talk, follow. Anyways, mm. moving on. <laughs> but yeah, it's this is not a good Rapids team. They they can have good moments like any team in MLS. If you let down your guard, they can beat you. But they are, are not a team that's going to score a bunch of goals or a team that will allow goals. This is a game that at home the Timbers are going to be very, very disappointed if they don't get three points. I agree. I mean, there are always things that happen within games, bad penalty calls. Somebody gets a, a, a skeptical red card early on. Injuries happen. These things can tilt games, but they happen very rarely. In most scenarios, in most ways, soccer games are played out in Major League Soccer. I expect the Timbers to win this game and I expect them to be very disappointed if they not only don't win but they don't put in a good performance one of the things they're going to be dealing with though is the international break as you just alluded to Colorado is going to be missing a prominent player I would say that the Timbers are missing one prominent player and two other very useful players Alvis Powell has been called in by the Jamaican national team so he's going to be unavailable David Guzman for Costa Rica and then Andres Flores for El Salvador how big of a issue is missing those three players I don't think it's huge. I, I think in the case of Powell, like I said, I'm really excited to potentially see a, a back line that has Viafania and, and uh, Zarek as the outside backs again. I think that's, I think that's a potentially going to be the Timbers' top back line. I think Powell will continue to compete, and Powell might be the one that comes in and is the top back line. But I don't think the Timbers lose much if those are their two outside backs, Viafania and Zarek. I think it's different. Yeah, Powell is so important to the team's attack. I think it's. Yeah, but I think Viafania can be... It's just sort of switching the side, potentially. See, this is what... I, I think we maybe had a discussion like this before that people... And I think maybe I actually contributed to this because I think I wrote this before. They're like, oh, yeah, Viafania gives them a Powell factor on the left side. And that's obviously true. But we've seen the way that 
this team uses Alvis Powell, Viafania is not that player. He clearly is better going forward than Zarek Valentin, but Alvis Powell is somebody that basically you can go, yeah, no, that one person provides the width. We don't need to worry about that. That's why the team looks so left-leaning sometimes with Blanco and Polo going out there. It's because Powell can do that on his own on the right. So losing that, I think, is... You were kind of hinting at this. It's very interesting. It's a totally different dynamic without him. Yeah, it's definitely different. I, I just... I think that the back line that doesn't include him can be very effective for this team. Yeah. I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think that's going to be the back line going forward because I think having Viafania and Palin there could be very interesting having two players that can get forward and Powell with his athleticism when he's playing his best. I mean, I think there's few outside backs in MLS that are as good as him when he is playing when he is at his very best. So but I think that's something that Timbers can compensate for and be absolutely fine without him. Flores again that's a depth piece. Absolutely fine without him. Guzman's been playing more. I mean, there is there's that, but we've seen plenty of midfielders, midfields that the Timbers have used and been effective with that don't necessarily include Guzman. So let me ask you this, because I, I personally ask myself this question. I see other people asking this question. Both Olum and Guzman, should they be playing as much as they are? I, I still personally would like to see Paredes getting back in there more often. It seems like I, we saw this promise early in the season, and then it sort of um, dropped off. And Christian we had just, a little trouble this weekend keeping the ball at his feet. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. But it, when you have a young player, you yeah. it would be nice, especially when you're playing with three midfielders, to try to build and give them minutes and time. And it felt like that's what we were getting, that if he was going to continue playing – that where he was now might be different than he is. Now, that's from an outside perspective, and, and Savaresi has his reasons for deciding that Paredes needed some time out of the starting lineup and, and probably stuff that we're not seeing. Um, and if he's not really an option, then it makes sense to see, I, I think, Guzman and Olam getting the, the playing time that they are. Um, but I, I definitely think that seeing some of these other options when Polo's in there, mm-hmm. um, even having Flores in there, definitely gives them a different look, especially going forward. Absolutely, yeah. And we're seeing after a time where Sebastian Blanco was getting more starts in the midfield three than up in attack, we're seeing how important Sebastian Blanco can be higher up, not only because he's one of the few team players on this team that is scoring goals or can score goals, but like we talked about with the Toronto game, using him as a focal point, using Valeria as a decoy can open things up a little bit. We we're talking about Alvis Powell, so let's skip to our listener questions here and let's go to the bottom of our list and our notes. Curtis, I keep hearing you describe Alvis as inconsistent, but I'd ask you to tell me the last poor game he had. Can we finally put that reputation to rest? I love these kind of questions because they're basically like, go do work for me, go look up every <laughs> game and tell me the last game that he was inconsistent. And quite frankly... I'm not going to do that for anybody who <laughs> who asked the question on Twitter, but I don't, I'm not sure that was Curtis's intent either. I'm I'm just going to answer this by saying that Alvis Powell has to have more than at one string of good games to lose the inconsistency tag, because all throughout his career he's been about strings of good games and then stretches where, hey, does this guy deserve a starting job over Zarek Valentin? I don't think we're out of those woods yet, although I recognize that Alvis, like anybody his age, is certainly progressing. Yeah, I'm trying to think back to the exact game. I, I think the premise uh, in the question is sort of that it has been a, a, maybe since the beginning of the season, a really long time that we've seen that existing. And there are definitely games, and I'm trying to decide exactly which one's going back in the last like few months where where he ha- Alvis Powell hasn't been as good. I, yeah. I don't think it's been a 
he's been great this entire season. Let's drop the inconsistency tag. There have been games and recent games um, where I, I think that we have seen Alvis Powell make mistakes and he's not been at his best. I think he's been really, really good for the Timbers when he's been on this year. And we just talked about that. What is Jamie, do you have an exact game right now (laughs) at the tip of your fingers? If not, you're not allowed to call him inconsistent anymore. That's how I feel. (laughs) Well, I am going to have to do some research and looking back. The thing is it involves not just like looking at statistics because you really have to look back and think to the plays in the game and watch back to really when all the games start running together after a few weeks at this time in the season. But I don't, for me, I don't think the inconsistency tag can be dropped quite yet, but I do think Alvis Powell, and we'll see. I mean, now he has a real uh, competition now. So now we're going to see if he's going to win that out and be consistent to the end of the year. Because if he does, if there is a situation where he's back in the starting lineup and he has a bad game, he can lose his position quickly now. It is not a given like it maybe was early in the season. I think there were two key parts. If you were to look at the Saturday Cole conceded, there are two things on an individual level that I would really single out. Where Lawrence Olam gave away that ball, I almost forgive the defense for being momentarily disorganized because if you give away a ball that you shouldn't be giving away out just outside your 18, the defense is going to be scrambling. But Alvis is basically with a one-on-one matchup with Caldwell right there in front of Steve Clark, and he's got to win that ball. Just like you would ask anybody there, look, the ball is there. Your one job is to make sure that person doesn't get it. You're not always going to win that battle, when you lose it, it's on you. So this weekend, based on that, would you say that Alvis was more of a positive or more of a negative? I, I think overall, it's, I think that was a tough play. But yeah, I mean, there, yeah. there was still a like, negative you, element. Right, you know? like you can't be perfect every game. Yeah. And nobody's asking Alvis to be perfect, but it does seem like a weird time to be asking about Alvis's inconsistency when this weekend you can circle a play and go, what happened here? Let's go to the next question. Uh, Igor asks, do the Timbers lack an identity? If not, what is the identity? Again, you go with this because I feel like I'm approaching these questions from a very negative state and I need to, I need to center myself and assume best intent because when I, when I look at the Timbers play, I see a distinct identity that is very different than the one they've had since 2013. But it's like they were saying on the New England broadcast, for those of us that had to go back and watch this on ESPN+, Plus, Bradfield knew exactly what to expect from the Timbers, what they were going to be, what they were going to be stylistically, where they did and didn't want you to have the ball. And maybe that's just a tactical identity, but it's an identity. Well, I think the differences and in, in where the question from identity comes from is that this team is not a team that necessarily wants to go into the game and win possession, but maybe they do in some games. They're not a team that's necessarily going to put out X formation, but they might some games, they might switch that, they might try something different. It's not a starting lineup that's consistent. I, I think there are, and this is what I think Savaresti continues to say, there's principles that they want to stay with, they want to be organized defensively, they want to, um, you know, they want to, they have certain principles of how they want to play on the field um, that sort of fill form into the identity that Savaresti has created for this team. But I think what makes it difficult to sort of, from an outside perspective, sort of define that identity is that so many elements that you think of when you talk about identity change from game to game. So they want to, there's certain attributes they want to be good at every single game, but the formation might change, the lineup might change, okay. and yeah, some I of the goals of the game are going to change. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, for people who aren't here, or you don't get to see my facial expressions as Jamie's saying things. I'm going, uh-huh, uh, I'm kind of hemming and hawing. But I see what you're saying. 
there are things that people associate with identity that change. I think what this moment is good for is to tell them that those things that they're associating with identity, they're not as important to identity as they might think. And it makes sense to look at a team and go, oh, they play this formation. That's part of their identity. They do X, Y, and Z. That's part of their identity. I would say that regardless of the formation, we see that the Timbers maintain pretty much the same shape all the time defensively. They know where they want teams to have the ball or allow them to have the ball. They know what they want to do when the ball is won back. They don't want to just punt it up the field. We never see that. That's part of identity. How are we playing? What what are the values inherent in our play, regardless of the formation, like you say, regardless of the personnel? And I think almost entirely, like this weekend, when Andres Flores is the most advanced midfielder, they played the same way. There's no question that we knew how the Timbers were going to play. So I, I think it's a conversation that goes beyond one question on a podcast, but I think the one thing to take out of this is that Maybe in the past you would identify Caleb Porter's style in terms of formation and basic general ideas of how you want to how they wanted his teams to play. Now I think identity goes beyond that a little bit. Let's go to another question from Graham. Graham asked, "Why is Aspria? Wait, why is Aspria? Uh, you copied these questions in here. Was there more to that question? No. Did why you, is are you are you Graham? No, I'm not Graham. <laughs> okay, Jamie. Uh, why is Aspria? I think I think this is a question in, in maybe more words we've gotten from a lot of people. Um, and there might be some more. <laughs> this might be the best version of this question. Yes, this is by far the best version of this question. I really appreciate it. We should all we should all write and talk like this all the time. But um, the the it, what it's alluding to is you know why is Espria getting the minutes he's getting in and what role is he playing with the Timbers? And I, I think that is a very valid question. We touched on it a little bit um, when we were talking about uh, the the New England game, I, I think, um, about if this is their best option, this is their best number two, the Timbers are in trouble because Aspria does provide things outside of goal scoring, and that is not his only role on the field, and there's other things he can do with his pace and what he can do in the attack that that the team, that Sabresi obviously thinks is a positive. But when the team has a forward, a second forward that comes in and makes starts or comes in and in plays with a two forward system or comes off the bench late in the game when they need a goal and can't score goals. And that is their best option. Yeah. It, it is a major issue uh, for this team right now. And that's why I think we were saying it's Milano. Milano needs to step up here because otherwise it's yeah. uh, is just not going to be good enough to be in the role that he is being asked of him, which might be more than just goal scoring, but it has to goal scoring has to be an element of that. Yeah, I agree with like 85% of what you just said. And I think it's like a, not just like, I think it's a good way to look at this conversation. I think the one thing that I want to challenge myself and other people, because I don't think I'm thinking about this enough, is the role of Dyron coming off the bench and having to get a goal. How many times have we really saw that that's his role? Through the first five games of the season where the Timbers weren't winning, it happened in New York against the Red Bulls, where Giovanni Savarese basically explained that Red Bulls were playing a high line. I want that guy to go out there and beat the high line, implicitly saying Fernando Adi wasn't the person to do that. Okay, that, that kind of makes sense. People don't really see Dyron as a nine at the time, but okay, that makes sense. The team then goes on this big unbeaten run where they never have to sub him in to go get a goal. The one time that they did need somebody, they brought in Adi against Houston, and he got the goal. And then ever since then, or even during that time, we've seen Dyron starting games. Or the times he's come in, like against Seattle, 
they put him in there when it, they wanted him to go in there when it was 0-0 and he didn't get into the game in time to replace Blanco. And even then, that would just be a pure injury. They are not putting Dyron in situations where he's supposed to go get goals. Now, the problem is they don't have anybody else either. And they haven't had many situations where they need goals. So yeah, they so, don't have... But they, this weekend, when you see how they set up the team, and Jamie and I have already talked about this, so... Um, yeah, don't be under any illusion. This is the first time we've addressed this. But when you see how he set up the team, they didn't put Dyron in the situation where they're going to use his talents to be the goal scorer. They clearly had the goal scorers on the bench, anticipating at the end of the game, they would switch from this defensive look to the attacking look. So they put Dyron out there to not necessarily be the goal scorer, although I'm sure they would have loved if he got some goals. Everybody would. But there is a realization there of what Dyron is. And it's a great opportunity to look at things through Giovanni Savarese's eyes and seeing how he's using the talents that he has. Now, the reason I love what you just said is that, and we've said it before here, this is less about Dyron and then than what's at number two on the depth chart. And I think it's almost a mistake to interpret that Dyron is the number two that, that they anticipate being there. So anyways, we can talk about this forever and ever, and we can talk about the Timbers forever and ever. In short... I think that the Dyron conversation has more nuance than we have been giving, even we have been giving it. And it'll be interesting to talk about it as the season goes on and whether Lucas Milano, Foster Langsdorf, Jeremy Obobese, Thomas Konechny step up or don't step up. Now, why don't you and I take a step back for a minute? Let's go into our memory banks. Let's get in our feelings a little bit. Let's remember somebody who, at least rhetorically, (laughs) we have lost. Ladies and gentlemen, let's embrace the Chris Riffer Memorial hot take interlude. Jamie? (laughs) I'm going to go back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier with Adanella potentially being out. We will find out how long he's out, whether this ends up being a conversation uh, that is matters at the end of the week or not. But assuming Adanella is out, I think Kendall McIntosh should start. I do not think that Steve Clark, even though he's brought in, even though he's the more experienced goalkeeper, I do not think that he should be the one that the Timbers put into the starting lineup to replace Adanella. I think that McIntosh has done very good for this team at the T2 level. He's been an option that they clearly want to develop to see if he can get first units in the long run. And I, I think there's been a lot of questions about this team not being able to, or not giving the, uh, these opportunities to these T2 players. There's the reasons, there's practices, obviously part of it. But Steve Clark's been here for a few weeks and is not a player the Timbers brought in as any sort of long-term solution. He's supposed to be just a backup to that they needed with Jake Gleason going down. And so I think this is the perfect opportunity to give a player that's performed well at the T2 level a chance at the MLS level to see if he is capable of taking advantage of this and growing as a player and could potentially be the option for the Timbers in the long run. So I really really hope that Kendall's the one we see in here against Colorado this weekend and that even though Clark has been the one on the bench we talked sort of about that how it made sense for him Kendall to continue getting minutes at T2 and not just sitting on the bench that they view Kendall as ultimately the number two in this situation given this chance to start yeah I agree with you so I don't think this is much of a hot take I think for me it comes down to the extent of Jeff Atnella's injury if it's only going to be a one game thing I say go ahead and just start Steve Clark let's not disrupt uh, the the routines that everybody has keep Kendall focused on T two accumulating minutes there etc. If it's going to be longer than that, I think they should really consider. Look, we're going to have to make a longer commitment here. Jeff might be out three weeks. He might be out a month. 
do we want to just ride Clark during that time or do we want to go with this guy who we can put him in a situation where he's going to have a stable routine for a month. He's going to be the number one for a month. And we don't have to worry about him being shuttled back and forth and losing focus on anything. I absolutely agree that that should be... That's what I would do, at least. <laughs> so, um, my hot take... I'm going to keep this very short because I think this is almost... Um, this is something that I think people are not going to be happy with. But in seeing over the last week and a half the way that the Thorns community has reacted to Haley Rosso's injury, which was a, a bad injury to watch and looked super painful, it's gotten awkward. So in the wake of that game, Mark Parsons basically said, you know, she's in a lot of pain right now. But we didn't see an ambulance go onto the field. We saw her stretchered off. We saw her in a lot of pain. But we saw at the time that there wasn't any emergency action being taken. We learned that she was going to the hospital for a scan. She remains back east because she broke her back. People are treating this as if Haley Rosso is never going to play soccer again. Or they're treating this as if it's an injury that she's going to be out for a long time with. She's going to be out for six weeks and take a couple more weeks to get back into shape. This is not as bad as an ACL. It looked worse, but it's not as bad as an ACL. It's not as bad as a severe concussion. It's not as bad as a broken ankle. There are a lot of things where players suffer more than this. Maybe not in the moment because that looked painful. But the online reaction to this has gotten to be a little bit infantilizing. And it's one thing for you, everybody to love Haley Rosso and think, you know, love her energy and everything like that. It's another thing when you are treating her differently than you would treat other players. And maybe that just says something about how much you love Rosso or how much you don't love other players. But for me, it's a little bit weird that players can be out for six months, take nine months to rehab, maybe be out for a whole year, maybe have a hip injury that will allow them, that maybe means they won't ever play again. And you are just going crazy over Haley Rosso. Haley Rosso is a grown woman. And I mean, I think maybe I'm going too far in saying this because I don't want to tell anybody not to feel or not to be connected with their players. But at some point, treat her like a grown woman. She's not 14. All right. Um, I haven't seen a ton of the online comments on, on Rasso, so I don't want to comment too much on that. I, I do. Obviously, people need to understand what the injury is. I, I know there's a fear automatically that um, with a back injury that there could be situations where players are never going to be the same with the back. This very clearly is something where Mark Parsons has said she will be fine uh, after she gets through this tough two- to three-week period. There will then be a rehab process after that. Two, but it's going to be two weeks, maybe three weeks, where she's dealing with intense pain and, and initially was dealing with intense pain. That really sucks. But it is, as Mark Parsons said, should be a smooth process after that. So there's no reason to think she won't be back on the field. There's every reason to think that, unfortunately, it comes at a bad time. She's not going to be back this season just based on the timing, but that she will be fine moving into next year, moving into the World Cup um, with Australia, and that she should be back to the same player. I think I really should move on from this, but Haley Rosso is not the only player where people react to them this way. And I think people need to remember that these people that maybe their tone when they're talking about them changes. They're professional athletes. They're adult women. They don't need to be talked about as if they are a high school freshman that are just so precious and can't take care of themselves and the world needs to come to their rescue you would not talk about a male player that way. Most female players, you would not talk about that way. And while I do think this all comes from a place of positive energy and concern, 
I don't think you get to decide or you should get to decide when to treat somebody like they're less than themselves. And Haley Rosso, she has a birthday today as people are um, going to be listening to this on Wednesday. I believe she turns 24. It's a 24-year-old woman who has lived now six, five or six years of her life across the world. She's a full international. She's obviously tougher than most of us. Just you can see that the way she plays. <laughs> she doesn't need to be talked about as if she's a Fabergé egg. And I think that we crossed the line. All right, let's cross back across the line and let's move away from that topic that's not going to be a very popular one. And let's talk about the Thorns. The Thorns have their biggest game of this season, for now. On Friday at 7 p.m. at Providence Park, it's going to be a lifetime game. And while it's not a winner-take-all game in terms of home field advantage, it kind of is. If the Thorns defeat the Reign for the first time this season on Friday, they get the number two seed in the NWSL playoffs. They get a rematch with the Reign eight days later here at Providence Park. If they lose, they could be going up to Memorial Stadium, or they could be going back east to carry North Carolina to face the top-seeded North Carolina Courage. Jamie, this is your department. What has to happen for those scenarios to play out? Yeah, a, a tie would send the, the Thorns to Seattle. Um, then the standings would stay the same. Fans will actually have a better idea how, of how this is going to work by tomorrow, potentially. Um, the Chicago will play tonight. Uh, if they don't win, that sort of takes out the Cary, North Carolina situation. They should win. They're playing Sky Blue. Um, assuming the Red Stars win, uh, yeah, the Thorns with a loss could drop to fourth if Chicago then won their final game. I, I believe that's on Saturday. So if the Thorns were to lose, they'd be looking very closely at the Chicago's game the next day. It's not the situation they want to be in. I, they absolutely don't want to travel to Cary. They'd prefer not to travel to Seattle where they've only won at Memorial Stadium once. To keep it simple, as we said last week, Thorns win. Home playoff game, home semifinal playoff game here at Providence Park, and the potential of back-to-back home playoff games here if they make the finals. So, yeah, this is a huge game um, in terms of how much it matters. I mean, I, I, I think I just allude to my feelings on it, but I, how much you, how much does hosting a home playoff semi-game final game versus going on the road matter for this team? For the team, I think it's more of a psychological thing. You have set up a scenario where you want to win the game. And they always want to win the game. But throughout the regular season, you have kind of open doors in the back of your mind that explain if potentially you don't win a game. Like the North, the last North Carolina game, we made progress in that game. We did things that we wanted to do. We feel good going forward. There's no feeling good moving forward unless they take three points on Friday. This is a scenario that they're treating like a playoff game. It's not a playoff game, but given the stakes, they've justified it in their mind like that so how important is this game i i just don't think you at least mentally you can really make it any more important because if they lose on friday they're going to wake up on saturday knowing that they need to completely rebuild their psyches in order to get their life together to go to north carolina or go to seattle the next week what are your thoughts yeah i think the and they said it a little bit but they've only um, won one game at more Memorial since Seattle started playing there. And, and Emily Menges said this week that, you know, it has to do with the field and that kind of the, how narrow it is and how it's different than other fields they play in the NWSL. And she feels like Seattle has a big advantage there. So there is obviously that um, that element. It's a tough place to play. They prefer not to go to Memorial and play there. 
they'd prefer not to play North Carolina in that game because if they can avoid North Carolina in the semifinals, they have the potential of hosting them here at Providence Park in the finals, which is a much more um, favorable situation for the Thorns. So I, I think... It, it's going to be a much tougher road. Not saying that they can't win a semifinal on the road. Not saying this team hasn't shown that they can go on the road and beat teams. But either of those places are going to be very tough. And it's going to be a much tougher road for the Thorns if they can't uh, win on Friday and secure that home playoff game. Yeah, I like your answer way better than mine because you mentioned the idea of having to go to North Carolina for a semifinal versus hosting North Carolina potentially in a final. Normally, I don't really buy into the idea of like, oh, we want to face this team before this uh, this team in this round so we can get to this level. I generally buy into the idea that you have to eventually face the best anyway. In this scenario, though, it's a matter of facing the best halfway across the, the world, or it's not halfway across the world, it's like one-fifth of the way across the world, but across the continent, or facing them here, and obviously that's a huge difference. Let's talk a little bit about international duty. Um, we've got Thorns all across the field, missing games from Adriana French in goal, Emily Sonnet in defense, in attack. You've got Tobin Heath and Anna Cernogosevic and Andresinha, and in the midfield, Lindsey Horan. The Reign are missing a lot of players too, but a lot of the players like Ali Long and Rumi Atsugi and Megan Rapino, they're not playing during this time. Some are on international duty, but they're hurt like Megan Rapino. Some didn't go to international duty at all. How big of a factor do you think this is that the Thorns seem like they're they're not the only ones hamstrung because people like Jessica Fishlock and Rachel Corsi are missing for Seattle, but it seems like they're more hamstrung. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to depend a little bit on, say, whether Megan Rapino can even play in this game, whether Ali Long can play in this game. They're both dealing with injuries. I, I think ultimately the Thorns are going to be in a better situation if they get players back um, on short rest and have to throw them in this game than the Rain are going to be if they're without some of their very best players, uh, particularly Rapino. I, I mean, that's a huge loss for the Rain anytime Rapino's not in the lineup. So and I don't know which team's going to be in worse shape. If, the, if Seattle's healthy, then I think clearly the Thorns are in worse shape. If Seattle's actually missing these players, then I, I think it's the other way. But it does sort of make it a little bit tougher. The, the Thorns have dealt with this before. I, I think the hope is that these players aren't going to all go 90 um, tonight or <laughs> very soon. Actually, we'll know by tomorrow <laughs> whether they have. Yeah, by the um, time you're listening to this, you know. <laughs> but I, I think that these players have dealt with it. They've come back and rejoined the team. There shouldn't be a chemistry issue. But if these players are coming off big minutes early in the week, that could make a difference in this game. And it's obviously not ideal when you're gearing up to a game like this to not have a full week of practice. So, yeah. Yeah, it's going to have an impact. If the Rain are fully healthy and the Thorns are dealing with the international duty, that's going to put them in a little bit of a disadvantage. But the Rain are dealing with injuries right now, which I think is a bigger problem if those players can't get back on the field. You know what Thorns player I forgot to mention? Christine Sinclair. Oh. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, look, I just assume she's... I just yeah, assumed you mentioned The that. omnipresent Christine Sinclair. Yeah. Look, the Rain are also missing Jody Taylor, had to go back for European qualifiers. They're missing Teresa Nielsen, had to go back for European qualifiers. I don't think it's clear cut that the Thorns are so much more disadvantaged than the Rain. But I personally believe when you look at the magnitude of the names, Heath, Horan, um, Sinclair, the Holy Trinity in attack, <laughs> in defense, Adriana French, uh, Emily Sonnet, two of the three main players in defense, you got Anna Cernogorsevich, too. I mean, come on. Those are huge, huge things and a lot of travel. Anyways, 
Let's go to one question between us before going to the actual listener questions. It's about the matchup this year. Two games, two very close games between Seattle and Portland. First one here at Providence Park. One of the best NWSL games of the year. It's decided late by a Rumi at Sugi goal. A worm burner that beats Britt Eckerstrom at her left post. And then the second game up at Memorial Stadium. Looked like it was destined for a nil-nil stalemate. The rain get, I believe it was an 88th minute goal? 89th from Jody Taylor. 89th minute goal from Jody Taylor. Just chaos in the box put back home a, a Jody Taylor special <laughs> two very close games where, where personally I don't really see much of a distance between these two teams do you feel the same way how much of a gap do you think there is between Seattle's ideal quality and Portland's ideal quality or not ideal what they're carrying into the game yeah I, I think the Thorns had a really good performance against Seattle in the second game I, I think I think the first game was back and forth but I think in either of those games even though I, I think overall the Thorns probably felt like they build they built um, a little bit go in from the second game. I think they felt better about the performance of the second game. But in both of those games, the Thorns were missing some really key players that they should not be missing this week. And I, I think that's easy to forget. Emily Menges hasn't played against Seattle this year. What? Uh, yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I kind of knew that she missed the early game because she missed all the early games. Yeah, but I, I think didn't she know had she, a... Um, she was still dealing with a abductor the, yeah. abdominal injury for the second And okay. then Tobin Heath has played, a, I think, a total of 45 minutes. Wow, because uh, I think both Are those, those players, players did with dealt with like secondary injuries later in the year, and I think they both came at the Seattle game. Oh, and when, when Tobin didn't break her foot yeah. on international duty, <laughs> and then Caitlin Ford uh, wasn't a factor, and she, I think yeah. she's going to be a huge factor in this game. Huge factor. So, yeah. I, this is a very different Thorns team than has played Seattle. I, I mean, those three players are hugely important to what this team is. I, I mean, Menges is. We've talked about how good Mangas is and how important she is to the defense. Tobin Heath right now is, I think she has scored in the last three games, has a goal or an assist in the last five. She is contributing game in and game out in the attack. And Caitlin Ford is getting fitter and fitter and is going to be at a point now, especially with Haley Rosso out, where she's going to play a big role in this attack and could be a big difference maker in this game and going into playoffs. So... I for just for me, I I think you can you can look back at these games. I think you can see promise in the Thorns, but I think you also can only take so much from those games because I think this is going to be a very different Thorns team this weekend. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with you. I think it makes it very very interesting the fact that you have somebody like a Caitlin Ford if she does end up starting and I, she's didn't go on international break. I think the the expectation is she's going to based oh, yeah. on what Mark said, uh, unless for some reason there's something wrong with the fitness. But he said she he hoped she'd be up to 90 minutes fit by this game. Yeah, he was pretty explicit about that, I think, when talking about things last week during his media availability, the first time they had been available since Washington, that Caitlin Thorne I'm Caitlin Ford. <laughs> Caitlin Ford kind of looks like the starting nine, especially with Haley Rosso out because you expect her to be the nine and Arsene Gorshevich go to right wing. Although one option that we didn't talk about on last week's show that I really regret us not bringing up is the fact that Andresinha could start there. Mm-hmm. We talked about Ellie Carpenter. We talked about Mish Purse. Andresinha could also start there. So um, the reason I find that interesting, it gives the team a completely different look because we think of these physical, high-energy players that the Thorns have out there, be it a Rosso or a Sergorsevich or a Purse or a Carpenter, all players that you know have a physicality to them. Andresinha is not that player, but she gives them a playmaking element that's kind of gives them a balance to Heath on the left side. And we've talked before on this podcast about how there's a different identity when they build down the right as opposed to the left. So that'd be very interesting to prepare for. Um, Speaking of prepare for, we did have a question from, scroll, 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 Chum del Rosario. 
Are there any more updates on Haley Rosso? Is she back in Portland? Oh my God, I can't believe people are kidding. Um, well, I think you answered it earlier, um, but that it was whether she's back in Portland, I think is the big part. Yeah, she posted to her Instagram, well, not her Instagram, to Twitter, um, I guess about three hours ago now, some shots from her doing some basic rehab stuff from um, DC. So she's on her way, and I, you know, she was smiling. She's doing stuff. It's just a matter of being able to travel with the injury yeah, that she has. Yeah, I think it's tough when you have to travel cross-country if you have a back injury of trying to, you know, sit up in a chair for six hours. It's not exactly an easy flight. So it's not surprising that they're keeping her on DC instead of putting her through the pain of trying to get on a flight until she's totally ready to do that. And the other question from Donna, I saw something on Anna Sernogosovic being injured while overseas. What's her status? Yes, she was injured in Switzerland's first game of the window. Uh, it's impossible to know her status until she gets back here i would say the level of worry about her right now is pretty low we'll find out on thursday and yeah, friday though thursday is probably the day that we're going to be able to talk to mark um, and get some more updates especially on the players coming back in and then we'll see on friday what the lineup looks like speaking of updates let's get updated on where jamie goldberg's mind is <laughs> ahead of these two games this weekend let's start with friday at providence park thorns versus the rain jamie goldberg's prediction I'm going to predict this is going to be a hard-fought game, but I'm going to predict that the Thorns are going to get the win at home, 2-1. to one. You're not just going to predict hard-fought game? No. Okay, not just a hard-fought game. I would game. think you're either going to get 0 or 1 I don't think it's going to be like a decisive one where everyone is, uh, where it's just clear from the beginning who's going to win. I think this is going to be, we're not sure, but there's, Thorns are going to come through. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in games like this, sometimes the home team gets a certain energy, so maybe I could see, like, momentum going against the rain at some point it, kind of piling on and being in a bit of an aberrational result but based on the history of not only the rain but every Vladko Anovsky team that has ever existed I would suspect that the rain are going to put up a very good fight and it'll be hard fought and that's my side bet that it's going to be hard fought <laughs> now my side bet is that Caitlin Ford is going to get her first Thorns goal um, some numbers here Caitlin Ford has been on the field for four Portland goals I think in her 190 minutes so far none of them have been her goals I think she's going to finally break through and another stat on that is that she actually hasn't been on the field when the thorns have conceded this year so she's the best offensive player ever. <laughs> saturday's game again at providence park timbers versus colorado jamie your prediction i think this one will be a little bit more decisive um i think the timbers are going to win three to one uh oh. felt like you were going to say that yeah I, I don't i don't see the i think this would be a massive disappointment if the timbers were lost to colorado i think this will be a pretty decisive performance and it'll be pretty clear the timbers are going to get the three points and the score line will show it so my side bet is based on the idea that I think Colorado is going to basically drop their defense quickly. I think they're going to give the Timbers that space that I was talking about, that Colorado gave the Timbers. And I think somebody is going to have to step up and score from that space. Maybe Sebastian Blanco again will put a perfect ball through the six-yard box and somebody will run onto it and Diego Chara will get his second goal of the year. As is, I'm going with a very specific bet, side bet here. Andy Polo. He's going to score. He's finally going to score, Jamie. We don't even have to watch the game. I'm saying he's going to score. But he's going to score from beyond the penalty spot. I think that area of the field is going to be uh, ripe for a Diego Valeri, Sebastian Blanco cutback, a Samuel Armenteros layoff, a 
Diego Chirag gets in the box and just flicks one back, and I think Andy Polo is one of the logical people to run onto it. And frankly, I'm trying to go for some big points here, so I'm not saying Sebastian Blanco again. You're, you're going to be really disappointed when Andy Polo scores on a rebound with just oh two inches from goal. Oh my gosh. If he scores on the same play that Diego Chirag did last Wednesday, I'm going to be like, why did I have to get greedy? Like, I'm going for like the 92 point yeah. thing here when I could just go for like the 30 point thing and be fine. But no, we're going for, uh, we're shooting from distance on this one. We're going to be Steph curry here not so much andre iguodala <laughs> all right well that's it that was a lot of timbers talk um very exciting thorns talk so let's just hit the fantasy update and then we will say goodbye uh third place this week we have hebrew steel with 519 points in second place we have flicking portland dot 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 something need to get the full name on that maybe i don't maybe it's want been it censored. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's been censored with 520 points and blood bath and beyond uh still in first place on this season of fantasy with yeah, 540 this season points of fantasy stinks <laughs> yeah richard's not so happy about no, it no i'm but... not happy at all <laughs> he wants to cancel the podcast why are you laughing not... about this because i think your pain's funny <laughs> <laughs> On that very happy and uh, positive I'll, note. I'll say the word blood again if you want me to. <laughs> okay. We're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Stumptown Footy, uh, Timbers.com, and Oregon Live, or you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>